You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. On August 30th, 1789, hundreds of enslaved people gathered along the waterfront in Saint-Pierre, Martinique. They had just received news that the King of France had abolished slavery, but their masters denied that any declaration took place. The rebels knew their masters would resist this decision, even if they had to dethrone the king, which would ironically happen within the space of three years. Enraged slaves from all across Martinique announced their commitments to violent revolt should their masters deny them their freedom. The governor of the island later described the rebels on the waterfront as, quote, armed with the instruments they used to cut their sugar cane, refused to work, saying loudly that they were free, end quote. The governor addressed the rebels, telling them that this news was erroneous, that the king had not freed them. The subjects of slavery and black citizenship had merely been added to the agenda for the Estates General, which had convened that May in Paris. The rebels responded by writing two letters to colonial authorities. The first said, quote, We know that we are free and that you accept that rebellious people resist the orders of the king. We will die for this liberty. We want it and we will gain it at whatever price, even through the use of mortars, cannons, and rifles, end quote. It went on to say of slavery that, quote, if this prejudice is not entirely annihilated, there will be torrents of blood as powerful as the gutters that flow along the roads, end quote. And then it was signed, Nu Negra, which is, in English, it's us Negroes. Astonishingly, the enslaved rebels had not yet received news of the storming of the Bastille six weeks earlier. But they were aware of a constitutional crisis in the metropole, and, in their eyes, the ideological turmoil in Paris had a clear relevance to their ambitions of freedom. In a second letter to the governor, the rebels appealed to a renewed drive for equality and justice among Frenchmen. Quote, The entire nation of the black slaves united together has only one wish, one desire for independence, and all slaves with one unanimous voice articulate only one cry, the demand for a liberty that they have earned justly through centuries of suffering and ignominious servitude. This is no longer a nation that is blinded by ignorance and that trembles at the threat of the lightest punishments. Its suffering has enlightened it and has determined it to spill to its last drop of blood rather than support the yoke of slavery, a horrible yoke attached by the laws, by humanity, and by all of nature, by the divinity and by our good King Louis XVI. We hope it will be condemned by the illustrious governor. Your response, great general, will decide our destiny and that of the colony. So this so-called news of abolition in Martinique was indeed a rumor. 
it would be two years before free people of color were granted legal equality to whites, and another year after that before the French Empire would temporarily abolish slavery. The colonial militia quickly crushed this rebellion. 23 enslaved people were tortured for their participation, and eight were executed. Still, the rebels' letters survive, and they suggest that the French and American revolutionary rhetoric had radicalized enslaved Africans and Creoles in the Caribbean. Enslaved people in the Caribbean did resort to active resistance much more often than their North American and South American counterparts. Haiti, then known as Saint-Domingue, and that's what we'll be calling it, Saint-Domingue, um, Jamaica, Barbados, and the Dutch Guianas were particularly prone to slave revolts, averaging one major revolt every two years between 1731 and 1832. No other slave societies have quite so complex a history of resistance as those in the Caribbean. Historian Sir Hilary Beckles has said, quote, the many slave revolts and plots between 1638 and 1838 could be conceived of as the 200 Years War. One protracted struggle launched by Africans and their Afro-West Indian progeny against slave owners, end quote. In this week's episode, we'll cover the middle half of this 200-year-long struggle. We'll talk about enslaved Caribbean suffering, their achievements, and their alliances with free people of color, but we will also discuss the realities of their violence and their complicated legacies in revolutionary politics, race relations, and international diplomacy. I'm Marissa. And I'm Sarah. And we are your historians for this episode of DIG. In Jamaica, sometime in the early 1770s, historian and slave-owning planter Edward Long sat at his writing desk and resentfully penned a description of Caribbean slaves. They were, he said, quote, irascible, conceited, proud, indolent, lascivious, credulous, and very artful, end quote. English-born Jamaican planter John Dovaston agreed, blaming the Congo, the homeland of many of the Caribbean's enslaved Africans. Dovaston recommended against using Congolese slaves if one was able, calling them, quote, the most vicious and desperate slaves, who, quote, if young, their disposition is so ill-suited to slavery, and if old, they will die before they will submit. Dovaston recommended instead that planters buy slaves from the Gold Coast, modern-day Ghana, to use as field hands because they were, quote, dull and stupid and only fit for labor. So you probably don't need me to tell you that Dovaston's hypothesis about ethnically determined personalities doesn't really hold water. The tumultuous relationships between free planters and their enslaved Africans and Creoles in the Caribbean has little to do with any inborn trait among any African ethnic group. The comparative rebelliousness of the enslaved people in the Caribbean stems from fundamental differences between the ways in which Caribbean and North American slave societies were organized. First, Caribbean slave societies were much more diverse than those in North America. When the Spanish first arrived in the Caribbean in the 1490s, they recognized five major native groups occupying the archipelago and outlying islands. But linguists have discovered that they spoke at least nine different dialects of Tainos. So these five groups were more heterogeneous than we might expect. Mm -hmm. On top of that complicated landscape, there were more than 7,000 islands. So most of them are tiny and 
uninhabited. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, these seven islands, they were claimed by five different European nations, the Netherlands, Britain, France, Spain, and Denmark. Following European conquest, these societies continued to diversify, both ethnically and agriculturally. The Europeans transported and enslaved Africans from approximately 18 ethnic groups. Enslaved people living in the Caribbean produced sugar, yes, but also indigo, coffee, tobacco, cotton, ginger, and cassava. Many also bred cattle. Racial categories were also much more blurry. Whites, blacks, and indigenous people forge relationships and produce Creole children. Creole in this context means born in the Caribbean, irrespective of race. Colors did not necessarily indicate a person's legal status. Of course, European whites were always free because they were running the show here. But free planners could be white, what they called mulatto, which is just biracial, or black. And for the most part, they identified with other planners rather than enslaved Africans or Creoles. Can I pause just to ask a question? And, yeah. and again, just in the you know interests of transparency, Marissa wrote this episode. This is her area of expertise. I'm along for the ride. So occasionally I will have a question. Um, you, you say that, you know, European whites were always free. Were there no indentured servants? There were some indentured servants in the Caribbean. But just But not it was mostly late. Yeah, there wasn't as many. Mm-hmm. And um, there, at least by the 19th century, they were mostly Chinese. Ah, okay. which adds a whole other sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I just, that, that's interesting to know. Yeah. No, and they were, and yeah, they there were some indentured servants, but they found, especially as sugar became mm-hmm. the the main cash crop, they right. found that that wasn't working. And I'll yeah. kind of explain why later, too. Mm-hmm. No, but, like, nothing sense. here is absolute. The point mm-hmm. is that it's, like, very, yes. all over the place, very diverse, right. very heterogeneous. It's really hard to, to generalize at mm-hmm. all, really. Right. All right, so second, many slave owners in the Caribbean belonged to an absentee planter class. Rather than settlers, Caribbean planters tended to be venture capitalists who established plantations in the West Indies to diversify their investment portfolios. They operated their lucrative sugar, coffee, or indigo plantations from abroad and lived on vast European estates, which they financed from returns on their Caribbean investments. This system was especially common among British, French, and Dutch planters. By the 18th century, most Caribbean plantations had converted to lucrative cash crops, namely sugar and tobacco, and wealthy Europeans passed down their plantations to their heirs, who stayed in Europe and oftentimes never visited the Caribbean even once. Absentee owners were, understandably, estranged from the people they enslaved on their plantations. They shared no common spaces, no daily routines, or personal negotiations like North American slaves did with their masters. This dynamic intensified over the 17th century and early 18th century. The estrangement between master and slave may have made harsh working conditions even more prevalent on plantations owned by absentees. Planters were not around to assess the welfare of their field workers or to make small adjustments in their lives that may have assuaged their resentment and anger. What's more is that Caribbean planters favored unseasoned slaves, meaning Africans who were new to the West Indies and enslaved more recently. They were called unseasoned because they were thought to be less accustomed to the rigors of slave work in the New World. 
Planters reasoned that if they kept their plantations populated with newcomers, it might be harder for enslaved people to form strong bonds and organize against their master. This preference, combined with the harsh conditions of sugarcane planting, uh, meant that mortality rates were very high. And for more details on sugarcane, you should listen to Averill's uh, episode on sugar and the slave trade. This, in turn, necessitated the importation of more unseasoned slaves from Africa, and the cycle continued. Planters mistakenly assumed that this constant influx of enslaved Africans would impede rebellion. We know now that plantations with higher Creole populations, or in other words, enslaved workers of various races who were born in the Caribbean, had fewer instances of slave revolt. The enslaved lived under harsh regimes, to be sure, but they also were able to form more bonds among themselves than slaves on smaller plantations or slaves who lived under the watchful eye of their master every minute of the day. Caribbean slave populations were generally unable to maintain themselves through natural increase, meaning having babies, um, and this was a huge problem on a sugarcane plantation. Planting sugarcane was a massive operation. For example, in 1873, the plantation of Juan Poe in Las Cañas, Cuba, um, it grew more than 1,560 acres of sugarcane, and it required 450 enslaved black workers, 230 Chinese indentured servants, 500 oxen, and 40 horses working the land at all times. That's huge. Yeah. And we know these people are working long hours. These people and animals are working, like, all day. Yeah. Um, so these massive labor requirements meant that Caribbean sugar plantations were larger and served more uh, – and served by more enslaved Africans than most operations in North America. Yeah. So that's kind of important to keep in mind because a lot of Americans, at least when you think of slavery, you think of slavery like... Big plantations. Yeah, yeah like in the, is, in the American South. Yeah, which yeah. is really not the, the most common experience right. in, in North America, for sure. Right. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The constant turnover, the high population of foreign-born enslaved Africans greater opportunity for unsupervised association among the enslaved and the lack of outlets for grievances made absentee plantations in the Caribbean hotbeds of unrest. This unrest was intensified by the high African to white ratio, which resulted from all of the above, really. So, for example, Jamaica was seized by the British in 1655. At that time, there was one African to every white person living on the island, so it's like 50-50. Mm -hmm. By 1703, there were six Africans for every white person in Jamaica. And then by 1739, which is kind of right in the middle of the time we're talking about, there were 10 Africans to every white person in Jamaica. The importance of absenteeism to the frequency of slave revolts cannot be overstated. Absenteeism was much less common, practically even unheard of, in the Spanish Caribbean. The Spanish also favored enslaved Creoles somewhat more than unseasoned Africans. In the 1760s, the switch to sugar planting meant that Spanish plantations tended to include fewer Creoles than they had in past centuries, 
But even there, the Spanish were known to put considerable effort into seasoning new enslaved Africans. Never in the Spanish Caribbean did black populations significantly outnumber white populations. These critical differences had a huge impact on the Spanish Caribbean's vulnerability to unrest. Until about 1810, the Spanish remained immune to slave revolts, while British, French, and Dutch holdings had been struggling with them for over a century. The Spanish were, however, the last to abolish slavery in their Caribbean holdings, 1873 for Puerto Rico and 1886 in Cuba. Yeah, which is so late. So So the point of that is that, like, yeah, the Spanish may have had less harsh conditions and less slave revolt, but they also kept slavery going for frigging ever. Right. So it kind of, you kind of get the idea that, like, all of this um, violence and unrest, like, it did actually earn enslaved rebels their freedom a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. so Kind of that's, forced the issue. Right, yeah, yeah. and it's, that's something to keep in mind. Um, so I know I said that the Spanish Caribbean remained practically immune to slave revolts during this critical period of 1638 to 1838, and that's true, but that doesn't mean that enslaved people in the Spanish Caribbean did not resist. In fact, it was in Barbados, Hispaniola, and Puerto Rico where the earliest instances of mass resistance began. Enslaved people, African, indigenous, and Creole, found that they could escape their plantations and form maroons, which are communities of fugitive slaves in remote areas. And I think we've mentioned them in some episodes before, I'm sure. Um, so the term maroon comes from the Spanish word cimarron, which I'm just guessing that's how that's how I would say it if I was Spanish, um, which means living on mountaintops. So it's kind of like hermits or something. Mm-hmm. By 1547, in the island of Hispaniola, there were about 7,000 maroons living in these remote communities in the mountains out of 30,000 total enslaved people on the island. So that's like a huge mm-hmm. percentage. Yeah. Um, I don't know, almost a third, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was happening in really large numbers. In 1697, the island of Hispaniola was divided in half by the Spanish and the French. So then, um, sorry for this geography lesson, but we have to, we'll talk about it a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, So Hispaniola was split up into Santo Domingo, owned by the Spanish, Mm -hmm. and then now the the Dominican Dominican Republic, Republic, and then um, Saint-Domingue, which is now Haiti. Haiti. And that was, at the time owned by the French. Right. Maroon communities on the island strategically used the Spanish and French against each other. After 1650, Maroon communities became increasingly involved in politics and continued to emerge on several other Caribbean islands. After 1700, they resembled bands of guerrilla warriors headed by one or two chieftains. Jamaican Maroons were particularly formidable in the first half of the 18th century. Their wars with the British are the first example of slave revolts that we'll talk about today. The British acquired Jamaica in 1655, and Spanish planters freed their slaves as a final kind of F.U. to their rival European power. The British were aware of how powerful the Jamaican Maroons had become because their possession of the island hinged on the support of their leader, Juan de Bolas. De Bolas signed a treaty with the British in 1658, agreeing that he would stop furnishing fighters for the Spanish in exchange for control over inland territory on the west of the island. The Jamaican Maroons continued to swell. In 1673, for example, 300 slaves escaped from St. Anne's Parish and sought asylum in the Maroon communities. That's a lot of slaves. At once. Yeah, that's a a huge number. I know. That's why I included that number. It wasn't always like that. Sometimes it was like trickles. But every Mm -hmm. now and then there would be a huge uprising and they would all disappear and they'd never come back. That's that's was unheard of in in the American South. That's like not oh, yeah. something that yeah. happened. No, um, not at least not very often. Yeah, no. And 
Um, so the British, I want to just to reiterate, is that the British were not able to, like, colonize Jamaica in 1655 unless they made an agreement with the Maroons. Yeah. So at that point, in the 17th century, that early, they, the Maroons already were, like, kind of the bosses mm-hmm. there. Yeah. It's um, amazing. I know. By the 17-teens, there were several permanent Maroon communities living on Jamaica. One of them was led by Queen Nanny. Um, so I know it's kind of, like, seems so weird. Queen Nanny yeah, is, like, like, a, funny a name, made-up yeah. name. Um, but Nanny is sort of, it comes from, um, it's properly in a con, um, Nanani, and that is an Akan word that means ancestress and queen mother. And it kind of, like, over time, people were just started calling her Queen Nanny. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably at the time that she was alive, they called her Nanani. Um, queen Nanny was an Ashanti queen and Obea, which is a priestess. Um, Obea is, like, the particular kind of um, Akan uh, religion, kind of similar to Vodan or Voodoo. Um, mm-hmm. So she was an Obea priestess and queen born in the Gold Coast region of Africa, which is present-day Ghana. Um, and she was born sometime in the last quarter of the 17th century. We know very, very little about her early life or anything like that. The Ashanti uh, are a subgroup within the Akan ethno-linguistic group common to West Africa. So within the Akan, there's all these tiny little um, subgroups that... right. I'll have the, their different cultures and things like that. Nanny and her five brothers, Kujo, Akampong, Johnny, Kuffy, and Kwao, were transported by the British to Jamaica sometime around 1700. It's unclear if they were biological siblings or if they were just like, like, this is my brother in mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. struggle or, you know, like, I don't, we don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so she's often uh, portrayed as an enslaved African, but there is significant evidence that she was never enslaved. European powers did occasionally enlist free Africans for certain initiatives in the colonies. And since they were prominent members of a con society, maybe they got involved in one of these diplomatic initiatives. It's also possible that they escaped British custody before they were officially purchased in Jamaica. We just aren't sure. They did all, however, uh, abandon the British at some point and assumed leadership of several maroon towns and dedicated themselves to building armies of escaped slaves. Nanny became the spiritual and military leader of Moortown. At the time, it was also called Blue Mountain Rebel Town. Basically, whoever was the head of the town was like, we're calling it this. So mm. it changed a lot. Um, Blue Mountain Rebel Town sounds like the name of a country band. Yeah, doesn't, doesn't it? it? <laughs> Blue Mountain Rebel Town. It does. Um, and then obviously, like, as Nanny became more, had been around longer, <laughs> its name was changed to Nanny Town because, um, you know. That sounds like a band of nanny old t- grannies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, in 1728, the British sent more troops and a new governor to Jamaica who escalated the violent conflict between the British and the Maroons. Maroon assaults on British outposts resulted in immediate retaliation by the British militias, and Queen Nanny and her people ambushed them, which was essentially a declaration of war. So basically, they're kind of like attacking little, like doing little mm-hmm. tiny small attacks, and mm-hmm. then the British eventually like were like, yeah, they were like, F this, we're going, we're going after you. Um, Queen Nanny went on to command 300 freedom fighters in a war against the British colonial militia, and this became known as the First Maroon War. Queen Nanny was a skilled strategist. She taught her band of maroons to camouflage themselves among the foliage of the Blue Mountains. She also organized a complex network of spies and lookouts who she trained to communicate with the rest of the group using the abang, a horn which allows people to communicate over long distances. 
Queen Nanny's guerrilla tactics inflicted huge losses on the colonial militia. Queen Nanny and the British mounted near annual assaults on each other throughout all of the 1730s. The British occupied Nanny Town twice. I'm sorry. Nanny. I know, it's hilarious. Nanny Town. I just think of like a bunch We're of taking old, Nanny Town. A bunch of old ladies, no walkers. <laughs> okay. The British occupied Nanny Town twice, but Queen Nanny and her men just continued to move deeper into the mountains. She was said to be able to catch bullets in her hands or between her thighs, heal wounded warriors, and produce charms which made her soldiers invulnerable. Recognizing Queen Nanny's charisma, military expertise, and the fact that the Maroons had little to lose, the British agreed to sign a treaty with the Jamaican Maroons in 1739 and 1741. The treaty granted the Maroons autonomy and British support so long as they stopped helping enslaved Africans escape their captivity and protected the island from invasion. It also required that the Maroons help capture escaped slaves and return them to their masters. This last clause split the Maroon armies into different camps. Queen Nanny opposed any agreement which would challenge the autonomy of Jamaica's Maroon communities. Kujo and Trelawney Town eventually signed the treaty, but the other Maroon communities declined. A land-grant treaty was drawn up in Queen Nanny's name that same year, but historians are almost certain that it was forged. Her resistance is well documented, and she never complied with its terms. The Maroons were also supposed to pay the British for the land grants they received, but they never did. Because they thought they didn't owe them anything. They were like, well, well yeah. we did all this work. F you. We own this land. Yeah. Lots of F you's today. Mm-hmm. The treaty sparked bitter resentment among many Maroons. This resentment simmered for over 50 years, and this uh, resentment is kind of an important part of the Second Maroon War, which we'll get to um, much later in the show. Queen Nanny died sometime in the 1750s. During her lifetime, it's estimated that she assisted in the escape of 800 enslaved people from Jamaican plantations. Yet, after Queen Nanny's death and the deaths of her brothers, the Maroons continued to train in the style of Akan guerrilla warriors and maintained a commitment to Obeya. Queen Nanny and the Maroon Wars are such an excellent story of resistance because they combine active resistance in the form of warfare against the British with passive resistance, which is in the form of kind of like maintaining their social and cultural ties with West African religion and military life. So they're kind of like, no, like these things are important to us. We're going to maintain these and these will outlive your British colonialism. Queen Nanny based her leadership on the matrilineal model of Akan queenship. The most fascinating part of the story is that thanks to the land-grant treaties the Maroons signed with the British, Jamaican Maroon communities retain their legal autonomy through time to this day. They also continue to practice many elements of Akan culture. And I should note, this might come up in the show, that um, in historical documents they weren't recognized as Akan, but as Coromantee they were called. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is because Akan groups were held in a ca- held captive in a town called Coromantee mm. um, on the Gold Coast before they were transported to the colonies and sold as slaves. So this designation kind of stuck. And Obeya, which is the religion we're mentioning um, practiced by Queen Nanny, is now colloquially referred to as Coromantee religion. Um, that's just one example of that. If I can just interject, I'm really glad that you said that because I was mentioning in my episode that many of the slaves held by the Dutch in the New Netherlands or the New Amsterdam, um, New Netherland being the colony and New Amsterdam being the city, mm-hmm. um, 
were Atlantic Creoles. Like, they were just kind of this, like, mix of people from all over the place. Right. And I kept seeing over and over again this term, Coromantee. Yeah. Somebody got a new Coromantee slave. And I had never heard that before. Mm -hmm. Um, And that just speaks to, I think, the fact that not only were the Dutch bringing these people from obviously from Africa, but they were coming from the Caribbean. Like right. they would stop in the Caribbean yep, yep, first yep. and then they would bring them up. Yeah. You know, the Caribbean um, was like known for their Akan for like the, yeah. I think it, like the vast majority of slaves yeah. that were taken to the Caribbean were from the mm-hmm. Gold Coast or Ghana. And the, the thing with the Dutch is that many of the first slaves in New Amsterdam were kind of Dutch slaves that had kind of already made the circuit. You know what I mean? Like they mm-hmm. were already, had already been enslaved in various parts of the Dutch empire. Mm-hmm. And then they had been like, well, we're going to start building New Amsterdam now. Kind of need some more bodies. Some Let's yeah. start bringing like them up from the Caribbean. Like they might have been enslaved in like, you know, in like a coffee plantation in Curacao or something. Yes. And then they, and right. then, yeah. And then mm-hmm. they're manumitted or transported or whatever. Yeah, they were just transported. But yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I'm glad that you mentioned that. As an African woman who fought for the freedom of enslaved people, Queen Nanny is one of Jamaica's national symbols of pride, and right now her face appears on the Jamaican $500 bill. They have a woman on their currency, mm-hmm. and Jamaica hasn't burst into flames with the smiting Apparently of God. not. Yeah, that's... America. Apparently money doesn't know what kind of genitals you have when your face is on it. Get your shit together, America. Okay. <laughs> Queen Nanny's example inspired one of the largest, most influential slave rebellions in Caribbean history, Tacky's Rebellion. Tacky was born in the Fonte ethnic group in West Africa, also part of the Akan. He was a high-ranking chieftain, spoke fluent English, and admitted to selling enemies from other Akan states, including Ashanti, Queen Nanny's people, to be enslaved by the British. At some point, his people lost a war with another Akan state, and he was himself sold into slavery under the British. While he was enslaved in Jamaica, Tacky rose to the position of overseer on his plantation. It was from this position of relative autonomy that he planned his rebellion with the aid of many other Akan insurgents. In May 1760, Tacky and his allies killed their masters, occupied their plantations, their plantations were called Frontier and Trinity, and seized the munition stores at Fort Haldane. Oh, that's weird. What? Be- the um, skating rink in the my hometown. It's like mm-hmm. not where I grew up, but the next town over was like the only skating rink was called the Haldane Building. Oh, weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Uh, they took over two more plantations, Haywood Hall and Escher, that same day. By the next morning, hundreds of enslaved people joined the cause. When the growing group of rebels stopped to celebrate their success, a slave from Escher Plantation fled to the closest authorities for help. As they planned their next move, an Obeya man spread a powder over the bodies of other rebels and told them that it would make it impossible for the British to hurt them. Notified by the enslaved man from Escher, dozens of mounted militia confronted the rebels. They were accompanied by Maroon contingents who were, because of the treaties with Britain, the treaties that we mentioned earlier, um, treaty-bound to aid in quelling the rebellion. The Obeya man boasted that he and the rebels were untouchable. The British responded by seizing the Obeya man, executing him in front of the rebels, and hanging his body by his own mask in sight of the rebel camp. This brutality convinced most of the rebels to return to their plantations, but Tacky and two dozen other rebels renewed their attacks. During a session of guerrilla fighting in the forest, a maroon marksman called Davy killed Tacky and brought his head to the British as evidence of his death. 
Tacky's role was finished, but several other bands of rebels renewed the effort in wake of Tacky's death. One was a warrior queen called Akua. Um, the British called her Cuba, like as in like Cuba. So mm-hmm. um, you'll see it both ways, and they're obviously I, – I think the British just made it up because <laughs> so, her real name was Akua. Um, Akua was another Ashanti queen who was elected by the enslaved people in Kingston in, in the city um, to lead the subsequent rebellion. Akua held court in Kingston, um, which is in the windward side of the island. This is the opposite side of the island where Taki had begun the rebellion. So she wasn't really in with the rebellion at first. Akua was outfitted with all of the traditional markers of Akan queenship. She had, like, a gown and a headdress. Um, Before her campaign even began, they were discovered and she was deported for conspiracy. She foiled her own deportation by bribing the ship captain to transport her to the other side of the island where um, Tacky's men were still fighting the British. So she's on the windward side and she says, okay, I'm getting deported. That sucks. And then she gets on the ship and bribes the captain to drop her off to the side of the island where all of the action is actually happening. Wow. She fought alongside Tacky's allies until she was captured and executed two months later. It took the British two months to subdue Tacky's rebellion fully. And the consequences were grave. 60 whites and 400 enslaved blacks were killed. Tacky's allies were captured and either burned alive or hung in cages, gibbeted, at the Kingston Parade, where they remained until they died of dehydration or starvation. Ugh, they weren't killed before they were put in the no. cages? Well, some of them some of them were killed outright, yeah. and some of them were starved and dehydrated to death. The rebellion was put down by the British brutally and decisively, but from that point forward, Caribbean planters were preoccupied by the possibility of revolt. Island security was tightened, slave meetings were limited and monitored closely, weapon access was restricted to whites only, and Obeya was outlawed. It was in response to Taki's rebellion that Edward Long, the white guy quoted at the top of the show, wrote his harsh condemnation of Coromantee slaves. I just want to say, uh, this is in the 1730s? This 1740s, is 1760s. 1760s. Mm-hmm. So either way, um, the the slave rebellion that I talked about in my episode um, on, on slavery in New York City and New York State happens in 1741. So this is happening Mm -hmm. we have to remember that all the things that we're talking about in my episode your episode and in elizabeth's episode are happening across the british empire right elizabeth's talking about the south i was talking about the north you're talking about the caribbean it's all part of the same empire Mm -hmm. all of this is is happening like the british are trying to put out fires everywhere yeah and it's because it's really hard to keep people enslaved like people don't want to be slaves because it's horrible to Um, be slaves believe it or not and so we see how the English are reacting with brutal violence against this, right? I mean, you're talking about people being burned alive and hung in cages. That happened in New York City in mm-hmm. 1741. Um, at least one person was gibbeted after they were executed. But something, I can't remember exact, the exact number, 13 or something, were, were burned at the stake. Um, and then, like what happens in Jamaica, they crack down on the the rights of slaves. And so, mm-hmm. you know, while slaves in New York City enjoyed certain rights before this, they a lot of those rights were, were cracked down on. They couldn't own weapons and things like that, Right. Too. But the difference is that it didn't work at all in the Caribbean because yeah. enslaved blacks outnumbered whites by mm-hmm. a ton. Like, they're... Yes. So, all right. they needed was... They had a numerical Mm -hmm. advantage, Mm -hmm. sort of. Like, they had a population advantage where Mm -hmm. they didn't necessarily have that in In other places. Right, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, New York becomes an odd 
comparison to this because the revolution changes things really significantly in New York. Um, and so there's a big, there's a great divergence after this point. I think it's just important to point out that we often think about, you know, the North is a silo and the South is a silo and the Caribbean is a silo and they weren't and no one treated no. them that way at the time. No. And the British were all just like, Oh, the colonies. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Okay. Coming back around to this. Caribbean planters panicked that their slaves would rise up and kill them and their families. And, you know, there was a pretty rational fear. Yeah. Because um, right. they wanted to. Mm-hmm. This fear was tempered by the fact that few of them actually lived on their plantations. But still, they worried constantly that their free workers and probably their profits would be damaged by rebellious slaves. For a short time, Tacky's Rebellion made British and French nationals question whether sugar cultivation was worth the trouble. Their uncertainty was aggravated by their being several years into the Seven Years' War, or the what a lot of Americans refer to as the French and Indian War with France. They were unsure that the empire could withstand additional unrest. Right. So the British and the French are the most worried about this because they have the most plantations in the Caribbean, and they're also at war with each other mm-hmm. um, right. in North America. Right. <laughs> so there's kind of a lot going on. Um Horrified British planners quickly formed a West Indian lobby, which blocked abolitionist MPs, members of parliament, um, from introducing legislation to abolish the trade. This is a super important part of the history of slavery because historians have shown that in Britain, popular opinion had swung in favor of abolition by the 1760s. And perhaps because of the violent complexity of the trade, which was exposed by Tacky's War. Yet, the lobby was able to delay abolition for almost 50 years. This post-Tacky lobby was so powerful, thanks to um, all of that rebellion anxiety and all that sugar income, um, that the trade continued without the support of the general public. Yeah. European planters' anxiety was amplified by the American Revolution, which began 16 years later. It was their fear of slave rebellion that convinced Caribbean planters to condemn the American War for Independence. Absentee planters had more influence with British Parliament and the French Crown than American colonists. Americans' grievances did not resonate enough with them to risk the loss of metropolitan support. Caribbean planters relied on imperial resources to defend their land and protect whites from further revolts. This dependence on metropolitan resources became extremely complicated after the outbreak of the French Revolution in 1789. The next slave revolts we're going to discuss are those associated with the Haitian Revolution. This conflict was long, over a decade long, and mind-numbingly complex. I mean, we could probably do an entire podcast series just on the Haitian Revolution, right? I mean, it is very complicated. I remember trying to pack it all into one lecture when I taught World Civ. Yeah, it's like not possible. Yeah. It was really hard. Uh, so we will not uh, be getting into all those complexities. That's not to say that they're not important. We, we just we can't fit them all in. Um, we're going to save that for a different episode. But we can't talk about Caribbean slave revolts and ignore those that are now seen as parts of this larger revolutionary conflict in the French colony known as Saint-Domingue, now Haiti. Now, this conflict lasted over a decade and is actually a combination of civil war, slave rebellion, imperial war, and several wars of liberation. But the slave insurrection in Haiti is the critical event around which Europeans and Creole planters were forced to conduct diplomacy and armed conflict. 
The French Revolution inspired and radicalized the free blacks in Saint-Domingue. So they were already resentful because many free blacks had served for the British during the 1779 Savannah Campaign. Um, when they returned home, they expected an improvement in their status among white planners. So remember, there's lots of planners in the Caribbean who are not white, who are, um, they, were, they generally were identified as mulatto. Uh, many free people of color on Sendomang were themselves slave owners. They felt like they had much in common with the white planters on the island and sought solidarity with them. But white planters disagreed. Um, Vincent Auger, and he would have said Vincent Auger because it's French. Vincent Auger. Uh, Vincent Auger and Jean-Baptiste Chavan were wealthy mulatto planners from prominent educated families. So these are, these are wealthy men. Mm-hmm. Siobhan had served in the military for the British in the 1770s. Both men resented the prejudice shown toward them by white planners on Saint-Domingue. When the news of the outbreak of the French Revolution reached Saint-Domingue, Auger and Chavon wondered if they could use this chaos in the metropole to their advantage to earn the status and acceptance enjoyed by white planners. So this is kind of smart. They're thinking, yeah, oh, yeah. stuff's getting shaken up. Like, maybe we can mm-hmm. get our piece of the pie. Mm-hmm. Auger visited Paris at precisely the moment when the king had called the Estates General. So that would have been May of uh, 1789. Um, He approached a block of white planners called um, Club Massiac, but they rejected his vision of a race-neutral society in Saint-Domingue. They were like, no way, buddy. So Auger was compelled to ally himself with Les Amis des Noirs, which was um, an anti-slavery group in Paris. And it means Friends of the Blacks. I know, it's just sort of like, oh, okay, it's right to the point. (laughs) Um, As the French attempted to reorganize the empire according to Republican ideology, the Amis des Noirs proposed voting rights for free blacks in the colonial assemblies, which were meant to represent the interests of colonists. So the the metropole is is in uh, revolution, and they're trying to reorganize into a republic instead of a monarchy. Um, and they say, okay, well, we need to have we need to have some assemblies in the colonies. Like we need to have a form or like a, a house of of governance in the colonies. These are going to be the colonial assemblies. The Amis de Noir and Auger say, hey, well, okay, can people of color vote in these things? And they were like, no. Um, even though he and other mulattoes from Saint-Domingue were anti-abolition because they had their own slaves, um, white Europeans were just unable to see past the color of Auger's skin. Britons were convinced that racial neutrality would disrupt the slave trade and ultimately destroy the lucrative sugar industry. One letter to the editor published in April of 1790 in the St. James Chronicle, so this is, this is in London, um, articulated these suspicions and warned against doing away with race-based bonded labor. So this is just in the newspaper. Um, it says something like, Dear Editor of St. James, or something like that. Um, <laughs> Quote, that it is impossible for white men to cultivate the sugar canes in Jamaica as it is to cultivate the cane itself in this country is strictly true. And I will vouch for another matter, that if the slaves were liberated, no pecuniary considerations could prevail upon them to work for hire. A Negro, either here or there, will starve rather than work. End quote. Because mm-hmm. so it's like, maybe they just don't want to work for you, jerk. It's it, exactly the same arguments mm-hmm. that southern plantation owners are right. making during and even after the civil war right? right yeah they're saying like 
Well, I mean, I guess you could try to free them, but they're just so lazy that they're not going to even right. work. So this what's is, the point? Like, right. they're they're made to be slaves. Right. Like, and that's, that's you know, how some people were thinking. Mm-hmm. Th- this is in 1790, so most people thought abolition was a good idea. So there, But there were, you know, societies are complicated. And so some people mm-hmm. were still thinking this way. Mm-hmm. And the West Indies lobby was definitely thinking this way. Mm-hmm. And this was their arguments. So, um, unsurprisingly then, the measure proposed by Auger and his allies was voted down and he returned to Saint-Domingue with a certainty that radical action was necessary if free people of color were going to get anywhere. Okay. So he got sent home. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> he was sent home from the Estates General very, like, disaffected because mm-hmm, he was right. trying to play by the rules and kind of get their right. piece of the pie and no right. one was willing to do it. Right. Auger, who was formerly a slave-owning man of leisure, began wearing military uniforms and rallying free people of color. Their actions went unnoticed for some time because they restricted their movements to the island's border with the Spanish colony Santo Domingo, Santo Domingo, Domingo, uh, which is present-day Dominican Republic. The Spanish were unlikely to protect French interests, and the police force was largely made up of free men of color who supported their cause. In October 1790, 800 French soldiers finally confronted Auger and Chavon on the battlefield. Half of them were themselves free men of color. Auger commanded only half as many men, but still the French were unsuccessful in putting down the revolt and were forced to withdraw. As they anticipated the next French military attack, Chavon and other soldiers tried to persuade Auger to enroll enslaved blacks into their ranks, promising them freedom for serving. Auger categorically refused. He envisioned his revolt to bring about racial neutrality and gradual phasing out of the slave system. Alienating other slave owners would just damage his long-term goals. Right. So even though he knew that his success probably relied on um, tapping into all of that, all of those disaffected slaves, Mm -hmm. he was like, no, that's not my, not my long-term goal. So Mm -hmm. he refused. The colonial governor of Saint-Domingue, at the head of an army of 3,000, attacked Auger and his men the very next day. They were forced to flee to the Spanish side of the island, where they remained for several months. The Spanish typically sheltered colonial fugitives, another middle finger to their rivals, um, but Auger was unlucky. The Spanish were in the middle of negotiations with France, and they couldn't risk upsetting them, so they captured Auger and extradited him to French custody. Auger and Chavon were tried, sentenced, tortured, and executed in February of 1791. Their bodies were broken on the wheel in the public square, and then they were beheaded and their heads displayed on stakes. Auger's suffering was great, and many people in attendance at the execution were so moved that he quickly became a martyr for the revolutionary cause. In Paris, French revolutionaries and moderates were incensed. Remember, they had met Auger at the um, convention of the Estates General. They had met this man. Also, moderates, who did not necessarily support abolition, were appreciative of O.J.'s efforts to avoid involving enslaved blacks in this revolt. Yeah, he, like, he didn't seem like a radical. Like He, he wasn't, no. Yeah. But they had no idea what was coming. So Right, but I mean, like, yeah. he, he was trying to play by the rules. He was acting like right. one of them. He was, yep. you know. That's why people were so pissed. Right, right. Um, so by May of 1791, only months after the execution, the Constituent Assembly in France granted free people of color equal rights throughout the entire empire. Dramatized reenactments of OJ's OJ OJ <laughs> different story. yeah different OJ okay um, dramatized reenactments of OJ's execution were performed on Parisian stages and and your like reaction 
that is that's what a lot of people were like wait like currently there's like this like you'll see what's about to happen is this massive slave insurrection where these slaves are just murdering and burning everything like oj would have been a good middle way yeah yeah Yeah. absolutely and and a gradual emancipation right that he envisioned right would have been uh that's why people were so mad yeah um oh i i just wanted to to say that it something that i i think is so important about this is just how complicated this all was and how this all became i mean we were so conditioned to think about slavery at least here in the united states we think about slavery we think about the american south we think about one form of emancipation we Mm -hmm. think about one form of people people of color gaining rights right Mm -hmm. it's so important to see that they the the french give free people of color equal rights but maintain slavery Yes. At the same time, I mean, yeah, th- this this happens in so many complicated, weird, but wackadoodle ways all around the world. I mean, the, mm-hmm. it, there isn't one script to emancipation. Yep. Um, not that one is better or worse, um, but you know, we need to keep in mind that this is a really complex uh, history. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we know what you're thinking. This wasn't actually a slave revolt. And you're right, but it was Auger's revolt that brought French revolutionary politics to the general public in Saint-Domingue. His execution ignited a civil war among several rival factions in Saint-Domingue, each fighting for their own interests. These factions were formed around both class, occupational, and racial identities, and their alliances shifted constantly. Once again, we're glossing over, you know, a lot of details here, but it's important to know how chaotic this environment was. In August 1791, six months after Auger's execution, several isolated slave revolts snowballed into a massive slave insurrection in the northern province. The enslaved rebels had planned to execute their revolt on August 25th, the day that the Colonial Assembly was scheduled to meet in the capital. So those Colonial Assemblies that they had kind of thought up in Paris in 1789 were uh, scheduled to convene. It's two years later now because they're trying to figure it all out and bureaucracy is slow. Um, So they were scheduled to meet in the capital, uh, Cap Francais, which is the capital of Saint-Domingue, or was the capital of Saint-Domingue. Um, All of the white planter factions were supposed to be in attendance. They presumably, the rebels, planned to slaughter as many men as they could. They began the revolt with a spiritual ceremony called Bois Caiman. Um, The details of the ceremony are fuzzy and clouded by legend, but historians know that the meeting or some version of it took place. Uh, Bukman Duti and uh, 200 other enslaved people from the surrounding plantations gathered in the woods to plan the revolt. Bukman was reported to be a charismatic orator, and he delivered pep talks to his fellow insurgents, um, while a Vaudan priestess sacrificed a pig, and the insurgents pledged their loyalty by drinking the pig's blood. So mm. we, we don't really know how much of that actually happened. Mm-hmm. But it's a um, big part of the narrative of the... Yeah, could be. We would think like Vodun and Obeya are are kind of important um, factors in in these people kind of um, committing to each other. Mm-hmm. It's, it ties them, it binds them together, and ties them together. So it wouldn't be shocking if it happened. Mm-hmm. But also the way that it's described in historical records yeah. sounds like white people being really freaked out exactly. about stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like it probably wasn't exactly like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Um, they're trying to make it seem very like I don't know. Like, um, weirdly pagan and yes. like barbaric, yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. So, um, 
days before go time, their plan was foiled. Some of their allies were arrested and parts of the conspiracy were discovered by authorities. Bukman decided to initiate the insurrection three days early and on a sugar plantation in the northern province rather than in the capital. On August 22nd, the rebels mobilized. To the planners' horror, it became clear this was no minor revolt. The enslaved insurgents numbered between 60,000 and 100,000. That's huge. Huge. Absolutely insanely huge. Um, French troops and colonial militias attacked Bukman and his men, but they were quickly repulsed because there's so many men. Mm -hmm. The French, I mean, their militias, it was just like, no, you get out of here. The insurgency moved like wildfire across the north. Rebels destroyed plantation after plantation, murdering whites, burning crops, and destroying farming equipment. In the course of two months, the insurgents had killed over 2,000 whites, burned 200 sugarcane fields, 1,200 coffee plantations, and 50 indigo plantations. Bukman was killed that November, but still the rebels continued their violence and destruction of the northern province. By 1792, so this is the next year, rebel slaves controlled one-third of the island. In the meantime, the civil war raged among the several factions in Saint-Domingue. France established a civil commission to address the widespread violence and instability. For two years, a French civil commission attempted to negotiate peace between the factions, but all sides remained obstinate. The enslaved insurgents remained unconnected to the factions in power. They were just a force of legend operating in the north with no voice in the colonial assembly. That was until Léger Félicité Sontenax was appointed commissioner in 1793. Sontenax was given more power than the commissioners before him, who really weren't getting anything done, and he was sympathetic to the black cause. He was a consummate French revolutionary, committed to liberty, equality, and fraternity. When he arrived in Saint-Domingue, he raised an army of 6,000 troops. The commission had never before actually had its own force. He deported influential whites and replaced them with mulattoes, which we should just point out we're using this the term mulattoes in the, the way that they used it. Right. Correct? Yeah, so basically mulattoes would have just been people of color who were also wealthy and slave-owning. Yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't <laughs> like a pejorative at the time. Right. Um. And he dissolved the colonial assembly and replaced it with a provisional committee comprised of six whites, five mulattoes, and one free black man. Unsurprisingly, his actions turned all of the white factions against him. Right, like, duh. White people, right? right? White people, yeah. No, so you can see that this is kind of already turning into a race war. Yeah. Um, yeah, kind of. I mean, it had kind of already been one for a long time. <laughs> I was going to say I wasn't being facetious when yeah. I said kind of. But... <laughs> a little bit. Um, so the governor, a Frenchman who allied himself with the white planners, challenged the commission's authority. So Sontenac dismissed him. That's kind of how the, the colonies had run before. They had a governor that they were appointed governor by the king or right, whatever. Right. Um, and Sontenac is like, this guy's challenging me. Goodbye. The enraged governor rallied the white militias around his cause and engaged in an armed assault against Sontenac and his troops. The ex-governor and his militiamen quickly occupied the capital. This was the last straw. Sontenac responded by promising the enslaved insurgents in the north freedom if they helped him retake the city. 15,000 black insurgents responded to his request and ran the ex-governor and white militiamen off the island. So basically, Sontenac is feeling like, hey, we've been trying to negotiate between all of you and ignoring these enslaved rebels who are doing all this destruction. Right. Um, but, you know, now you've, you leave us no choice. We need to harness that power because, mm -hmm. you know, if this isn't working. 
This alliance between enslaved rebels and the French government came at an opportune time. Shortly after the governor and militiamen were defeated, Spain and Great Britain attacked Saint-Domingue. So now there's now the rival powers are like, hey, we're going to get in on this. So this is why it gets so complicated. Mm -hmm. Many black insurgents led by General and former slave Toussaint Louverture had taken up arms with Spain who promised them freedom. Spain and Britain sought to take advantage of the revolutionary chaos in Paris and to protect their colonial interests from the anarchic fervor of the French radicals. So at this point, some of the more conservative European powers are like, whoa, these French people are going crazy. And this is right leading up to the Reign of Terror. So they're sort of, like, thinking, wait, this is turning bad. So now everyone's just anti-French because this oh, is yeah. so dangerous. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, the Americans were like, Whoa. Yeah, like, no, except, this is not good. Except for Thomas Jefferson, who was like, but I love the French so much. They have a good wine. And everybody was like, shut up, Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> um, yeah, Louverture and uh, most of his followers did not desire independence from France specifically. They desired independence from slavery and allied themselves with whomever agreed to make that a reality. So they didn't really care who they were under. They just right. wanted freedom. Identifying this as a unique opportunity, Sontenac boldly declared liberty for all blacks on the island in the summer of 1793. By February of 1794, the French National Convention declared universal abolition of all slaves within the French Empire. For France, this was not only political, but also a practical move. The French decided that they could only succeed in their interests abroad if they had one leg up over the English. For revolutionaries, this leg up came in the form of abolition. Now, the French were able to quickly raise large armies of ex-slaves on site. The British did not have this capability. Throughout the 1790s, 60,000 British troops were killed and many millions of pounds spent in the Caribbean keeping enslaved populations in check. Spain had historically protected the interests of Caribbean slaves in French and British colonies, but as Louvatour was discovering, they were not willing to go so far as to abolish slavery in order to vanquish their rivals. The goals for most people of color on Saint-Domingue up to this point had either been, one, legal equality with whites, or two, the abolition of slavery. France's abolition of slavery within the empire gave people of color in Saint-Domingue what they wanted, yes, but it also served the interests of white middle-class revolutionaries. For example, on the day the National Convention abolished slavery, Georges Danton, the first president of the Committee of Public Safety in Paris, was quoted as saying, Representatives of the French people, until now our decrees of liberty have been selfish and only for ourselves. But today we proclaim it to the universe, and generations to come will glory in this decree. We are proclaiming universal liberty. We are working for future generations. Let us launch liberty into the colonies. The English are dead today. So, so he's like, we're doing this amazing, very unselfish thing, but the English are are done. Right, this is for <laughs> like, everyone. This is universal. Yeah, this is for everyone. Die, British. But the English are the worst, just so you know. Well, I mean, they right. sort of were. I know, but... The, but, um, I mean, he was going to be chopping people's heads off in about Yeah, right. Minutes. He was going to get his own head chopped off. They all were. Um, so, Guadeloupe is one example of the French using abolition against the British. So, basically, the French are saying, we are so superior because we have abolished slavery and you're horrible and you're British. Mm -hmm. And what they did was, in 1790, the white planners on Guadeloupe refused to enforce France's granting of equal rights to people of color. So, let's move back a few years. That's when... Um, Paris decided, hey, all free people of color can have equal rights. Mm -hmm, that was the mm -hmm. first step. This is right. before abolition. 
Um, and that's kind of what OJ was asking for, right? And that happened right after OJ was right, killed. Right, right, right. Um, a slave revolt in 1793 prompted the disaffected white planters to invite the British to come occupy the island. So white planters on Guadalupe um, were just resistant to to what the French were telling them, hey, you have to do this in the colonies from now on. Um, and then the last straw was a slave revolt in 1793, which prompted the disaffected white planters to invite the British to come and occupy the island. So they're under French rule, and they're asking the Brits, hey, come take us over. And the Brits were like, sure, because Guadalupe was the most lucrative sugar colony in the Caribbean, and they had coveted it for over a century. The British had tried to take it several times before that. The Brits occupied the island for most of 1794 until a French Republican governor ended the occupation and freed the slaves who turned on their owners. So then once this French Republican governor came, he freed these slaves in Guadeloupe and they killed all of their masters. Mm. From that point forward, the French used freedmen in interesting ways on Guadeloupe. Ex-slaves manned Guadeloupian privateering ships, which attacked British supply ships heading to the colonies. The privateers sometimes captured slave vessels and brought the Africans on board to Guadeloupe, where they were given the same rights as other freedmen on the island. So this is kind of like a little, briefly like a little utopia, sort of. These black privateers also played a critical role in the intelligence networks which made pan-Caribbean communication possible during the chaos of the 1790s. So enslaved people in the French Caribbean experienced temporary benefits from France's radical move. But planters, both black and white, in the colonies continued to resist the declaration of abolition. The British continued to enforce slavery and pursue armed conflict with slave rebels in their Caribbean colonies. In some ways, France's abolition of slavery made life harder for enslaved people in the British Caribbean. The Second Maroon War is a representative example of how the British handled enslaved rebels after French abolition. Remember, we left off with the First Maroon War and how the peace treaty with Britain resulted in a schism of the Maroon towns. In the summer of 1795, so just one year after the abolition of slavery in the French Empire, two Maroons from Trelawney Town attempted to steal pigs from a farm and were beaten by an enslaved man who worked on the farm. When the Maroons went to file a grievance with the British, the British imprisoned them and reignited the Maroon Wars. Because the British were unwilling to ally themselves with enslaved blacks, they were compelled to use their own troops. The British furnished 5,000 troops to fight against Trelawney Town in the ensuing war. Due to the deep fissures in Maroon relations caused by the First War, remember they had disagreements about whether they were going to help slaves uh, escape, um, the Maroons from Akompong allied with the British and fought Trelawney Town. So one of the Maroon towns that had signed the treaty, they were um, compelled to fight alongside the British against another Maroon town, Trelawney Town. 65 British troops were killed before the first Trelawney Maroon was even wounded. Only a total of 16 Trelawney Maroons were killed in the war, while British casualties were in the hundreds. The British were intent on destroying the Maroons this time around, however. They were convinced that the Maroons were being influenced, perhaps even aided, by the French Revolutionary. So here comes this sort of paranoia of, oh, the French Revolution, everyone's like, mm -hmm. oh, they're so inspired by the French Revolution, this is so dangerous. Um, after the British burned down the towns, poisoned their water supply, and released 100 Cuban bloodhounds in the region to track Maroon warriors, Trelawney Town did eventually surrender. 
Um, they did so under the condition that they would not be deported off the island. Dozens of runaways fled their plantations to fight alongside Trelawney Town during the war. These warriors were treated with no mercy. Half of them were resold into slavery in Cuba, and the other half were executed by the British. It seems like I just, I read something not that long ago about Cuban bloodhounds, and I can't remember what it was, but they, they were, like, intense. Did it have something to do with, with like runaway slaves yeah, or something yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah right they were like that's what they were bred for right mm-hmm. is to track down um runaways escaped slaves dogs, yeah. dogs. they're dogs mm-hmm. <laughs> um the second maroon war is obviously much different from the first maroon war and it takes place like i don't know 60 years later so this right. is a long time yeah. um the stakes were much higher now Having witnessed Tacky's Rebellion, the American Revolution, OJ's Rebellion, and the Slave Insurrection of 1791, the British were intensely motivated by revolt paranoia and a frantic desire to preserve the empire, intensifying imperial rivalries, and the threat of spreading radical Republican ideology. This sort of reminds me, it's a kind of Cold War-ish. So, like, the British saw themselves as one side of the Cold War and the French with the other side, and they're like, oh, we need to save the colonies mm-hmm. from this French craziness. Mm-hmm. That's, like, spreading. Yeah, right, that's spreading. Robespierre's reign of terror left 40,000 mostly bourgeois Frenchmen dead, and this was a decisive confirmation for Britons that it was in their interest to preserve parliamentary monarchy. So you can see that uh, as momentous as it was for the French to abolish slavery in the empire, their abolition of slavery and Britain's decision to continue the slave trade were decisions that aligned with their diplomatic interests more generally. So, I mean, I think the basic point is that even though... You know, it was great that the French abolished slavery. Mm-hmm. They were kind of doing it, like, mm-hmm. for their own reasons. They did mm-hmm. it because they were mm-hmm. trying to beat the British. Yeah, yeah. Right? And, and again, things that we see happening in other countries, too. I mean, right, the, the emancipation initially in the United States was much more of a war measure than it was anything else, right? It wasn't mm-hmm. It wasn't because Abraham Lincoln just loved black people so much, right? right? He was like, oh, this is... This right. Is- Tugging at my heartstrings. Right. Um, yeah, it's always, there's always sort of a pragmatic thing yeah. behind these. The, the issue. Yeah, yeah, right. Or at least the French thought that abolition would serve their general interests. This turned out to be short-sighted when it came to Saint-Domingue. Shortly after Louverture allied with France, he expelled Sontenax from the colony before his term as commissioner was done. Most historians think that he felt threatened by Sontenax's popularity and resented the fact that a wealthy white man was taking credit for abolishing slavery. Louvatour was an effective leader. A brilliant general, he and his forces were able to expel the British from Saint-Domingue in 1798. This restored French control over the island. Louverture anticipated that the French would welcome his efforts and that he would become a favored authority within the empire, but he failed to realize that the French feared his power and anticipated that he would conquer the island for himself, leaving France without its most lucrative sugar colony. France responded by putting many checks on Louverture's power. They encouraged dissent within his ranks, replaced legions of ex-slaves with white troops, forced Louverture to resign, and replaced him with three white generals. These actions convinced the ex-slave rebels that France was hell-bent on restoring slavery. The end to the French Republic in 1799 at the hands of Napoleon Bonaparte supported these fears. 
The rise of Napoleon marked a turning point when rebels on Saint-Domingue went from desiring abolition to desiring independence from France and the formation of a black republic. In 1801, Louverture led an army across the border to conquer the Spanish half of the island and free the slaves that had been under Spanish control. Napoleon's power continued to grow, and the United States pledged their support to him should Saint-Domingue attempt to overthrow French rule. So basically, the Americans are saying, hey, Napoleon, we're right behind you. Let's put these, you know, pesky slaves in their place. So kind of Saint-Domingue is becoming like a you know, it's it's like a, a figurehead for all of this slave anxiety, all of this oh, revolting. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Americans were very, very unsettled by what was happening in Haiti. Right. The American slaveholders. Perhaps they should have been. Well, yeah. So, um, in a desperate bid to protect the long-term well-being of the colony, Louverture enforced labor codes which effectively reinstituted slavery. He sought to make the colony profitable again. He reasoned that if Sendomang had no hope of surviving as an independent nation if it wasn't producing and exporting goods. So essentially, in order to achieve liberty from France, Louverture rewound one of his biggest accomplishments, the reason why so many people were loyal to him in the first place. Napoleon's agenda made matters worse because he began to gradually reinstate slavery throughout the empire, even though Napoleon did keep saying, don't worry, in Saint-Domingue, we won't reinstate slavery. We're just doing it everywhere else. <laughs> and the people on Saint-Domingue were like, yeah, okay, right. Sure, 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 sure. Right. Um, after a gradual decline, Louverture was exiled to France where he died in prison. But his second-in-command, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, was able to maintain support from ex-slaves and went on to defeat Napoleon's forces and declare independence for Haiti in 1804. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there was, like, tons and tons of, like, more stuff, stuff that yeah. happened <laughs> right. that was like, how do we do this in 20 minutes? Right. Type of. The Haitian Wars of Liberation are the last instances of Caribbean slave revolt that we have time for today. But the rebellious spirit of enslaved Caribbeans did not end there. In fact, it was invigorated by the Haitian example, which taught them that blacks were indeed capable of defeating white Europeans and creating nations of their own. Enslaved populations in the British Caribbean were inspired by Haiti and went on to stage several large slave revolts in Barbados in 1816 and in Jamaica in 1831, before they abolished slavery in 1833. Apart from the immediate impact of Caribbean slave revolts during the Revolutionary Era, there are several ways that it influenced Caribbean culture today. The enslaved rebels we quoted at the top of the show had referred to a Black Caribbean nation. This and many other instances suggest that Caribbean slave revolts sit at the root of an Afro-Caribbean identity. This is the reason why Akan culture is so critical to the Afro-Caribbean identity which was forged during this century. This identity is one shaped by colonialism and enslavement, but also the legacy of Akan heritage which shaped the thoughts and tactics of enslaved rebels. So, in some ways, Long and Dovestan's perceptions that enslaved people in the Caribbean were prone to rebellion is accurate. Enslaved Africans in the Caribbean and their Creole descendants did employ active and very violent resistance at a frequency and intensity that we don't find elsewhere. But planners like Long and Dovestan failed to locate the cause in this racism and inhumanity of the system of bonded labor that sustained their fortunes. There was also more to Caribbean slave rebellions than revolutionary ideology. This 200 years war that I mentioned in the beginning of the show um, began long before the revolutionary era and ended 
existed only once Caribbeans achieved widespread emancipation and independence in the 1860s. But the cultural currency of Republican politics did, for some time, allow enslaved Caribbeans to legitimize their rebellion. So there was like a brief period in time where this rebellion was like, no, this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be fighting for liberty. Whereas um, before and after the revolutionary period, their rebellions weren't legitimized. They were just acting up, that mm-hmm, sort of mm-hmm. thing. So it gave them this brief window where they could sort of speak like American or French revolutionaries right. and use that rhetoric. Yeah. Um, but I have to point out the irony of one thing, which I just it just tickles me when I read it. So Doviston, um, he singled out Gold Coast Africans as the ethnic group most suited to slavery. Obviously, no ethnic group is ever suited to slavery. Like, no human is ever suited right. to slavery. Yeah. Um, but he was doubly wrong about the Akan from the Gold Coast, which he called dull and stupid and only fit for labor. Approximately 1.2 million Akan people were forcibly transplanted to the Caribbean and sold as slaves between 1520 and 1838. The Akan were incredibly intelligent and sophisticated activists whose military skills had a devastating impact on European powers. Akan culture was an important element of the 200 years war for abolition, and their activism served as inspiration for Marcus Garvey, the Rasta movement, reggae, and some argue for a pan-Caribbean identity which allowed for the rise of Caribbean nationalist politics in the 20th century. So though he picked on those people specifically, mm-hmm. saying, oh, that ethnic group is super lazy right. and suited to slavery. Like, pick them. Mm-hmm. And they were actually the ones who led these mm-hmm. rebellions. Right. It was. I'm particularly interested in the fact that they had a, sort of a military culture. Yeah. And so they, 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 they were enslaving people who were like, Ra- born and raised as fighters, right? Yeah, as so, guerrilla warriors, yeah. yeah. Right. And it's just like, it gives me chills to think about it because he was all like, yeah, definitely enslaved those ones instead. And so right. the people who listened to him were fucked because right. these, you know, obviously each person has their own personality, but this particular group mm-hmm. had grown up in a culture right. that was a very martial yeah. culture where they learned all of these yeah. skills. Um, and because of the particular form of slavery in the Caribbean, a lot of that was preserved for much longer than it was, say, in South Carolina or right. Georgia. Right. Even if Akan people were in those places, that, that seasoning, right, kind right. of took that out of them. And also the internal slave trade in, in the United States takes off in a way that it doesn't in the Caribbean necessarily. Right. They yep. preferred to use people that were fresh off of the boat, right? Right. And a lot um, of, I think a lot of people in the American South were sometimes brought after they had like worked yes. on sugar plantations. They seasoned in the Caribbean right. and then brought Right. Up. Absolutely. No, right. And yeah. that's why even to this day, many mm-hmm. like maroon communities in Jamaica and also in the French Caribbean, mm-hmm. um, like Haiti, they are still speaking Akan languages mm-hmm. that their ancestors were speaking yeah. hundreds of years ago. Yeah, yeah. And that obviously in the American South, there is, you know, they, they did sort of create, what are they called? The There's a couple of... Patois? Is that what the languages are? Like well, there's... When it's a there, combination of... Yeah. Um, of pigeon? Pigeon, yeah. yes. Um, there's a couple of really isolated of course now they're even more they're very very tiny but like they were even isolated at the time communities in like the coastal um south carolina um i can't the sea islands that area of south carolina and georgia had like its own kind of communities that are called the Gullah communities and they spoke a, a language that oh, was yeah, like yeah, a yeah. pigeon english Gullah, that was, Gullah island yeah like it was the like TV a, show. <laughs> 
Okay. No. Like, if, <laughs> you didn't ever watch Gullah Gullah Island? No, I've never heard of it. Um, but okay. yes, what there are there are little pockets of that across the American South, but mm-hmm. in no way like the maroon communities, mm-hmm. you know, like they and there's they also did, huge maroon preserve... communities in Brazil too. Yes. and I think that's yeah. just because it's so like mountainous and like mm-hmm. ridiculous that yeah. that that they were able to function better. And or, you know, yeah, that's a good point too. That that the geography of slavery makes a difference too, because mm-hmm. that that doesn't those maroon communities don't don't grow up in the United States. They're, and and again, there are pockets of that, like where slaves would, would flee to Spanish Florida. And mm-hmm. there were like, um, the Seminole in Florida, in Florida would take slaves in sometimes and they would have their own kind of, but we're talking about on like an extremely small scale compared to these and also huge in, maroon um, communities. French Louisiana. Yes. Probably because that was still under French rule. So when the mm-hmm. French abolished slavery, mm-hmm. if you made it to French Louisiana, that's you could one of the reasons that I think um, Elizabeth talks about this in her episode. Actually, mm-hmm. it's one of the reasons that New Orleans has such a completely different racial categorization makeup than mm-hmm. the rest of the American South does. Because right. there was a whole different thing happening in French Louisiana. Mm-hmm. It was kind of its own enclave. You right. know? Yeah, it's really. I like to think about the, just the diversity yes. of slave societies. I mean, it's crazy yeah. that there were so many of mm-hmm. them, but they're also different from each other. And learning yeah. about slavery and emancipation or slavery and resistance yeah. and rebellion in one area, it's there's so many factors mm-hmm. about how it's like that'll make it totally yeah. different story somewhere else. Yeah. And that's why I think that... Well, that's why I really like the way that your episode, my episode, and Elizabeth's episode kind of work together to show that, you know, across the French and British empires, um, yes, it was a British empire and it was a French empire, but the way that slavery existed and adapted and molded over time was vastly different depending on what corner of that empire you were on. I mean, this Mm is incredibly diverse and complicated and had you know new york was part of the british empire but its racial stratification was completely different from jamaica's right. racial stratification yeah you know both some of them, part of the british think, empire but like some historians would say that it had to do with the crop that they were cultivating mm-hmm. like what are the logistics mm-hmm. of cultivating rice versus cultivating coffee mm-hmm. or whatever right so some people would say that you know that's the main we're mm-hmm. all going to be arguing about what the the biggest influence is right. but what it comes down to is that there are so many of them mm-hmm. and it just i don't know it's what makes totally history different. interesting yeah. i guess and i'm also glad that you know Avril in her conversations about the janissaries is talking about something that's so radically different that we remember that you know that slavery has taken different forms and slave societies have looked different over time that mm-hmm. again we often and we should when we think slavery we think of what we you I and Elizabeth have been talking about but mm-hmm. Slavery hasn't always meant the same thing forever. Right. Um, this was a very peculiar instance yeah. of slavery in mm-hmm. the big zoomed out history of the world. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, a very European, Atlantic sort of version. Yeah. Well, I hope that you have enjoyed this series on slavery. I've really learned so much um, in the research that I did and, and learning from you, Marissa. I always learn so much in your episodes. And I make you speak French and you hate me. I did okay this time. You did. I did you all did right. really well. Um, but <laughs> I really enjoyed it. So I hope that um, listeners that you've enjoyed it and you've learned a thing or two as well. Yes, absolutely. And it, this is one of my most favorite 
episodes to do. Yeah, it, I, it was really, I enjoyed doing it. If you haven't yet, make sure you leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you leave your reviews. Mm-hmm. If you um, have mean things to say, you know, you can just keep that to yourself. Yeah, that's fine too. Yeah. You can say that to a pigeon. Say yeah. it to a tree. Talk to a garbage can. Yeah, because they care more than we do. You don't do. have to put those words on the internet. Um, but anyway, the, <laughs> also you should stop at our website. Um, it's digpodcast.org. You can find transcripts and show notes and images that we've curated specifically for you. I work really hard on picking out just the perfect yes, image. Yes, absolutely. And you can find our social media accounts on, we have Insta, we have Pinterest, we have Facebook and Twitter. And we have a Facebook group called Dig History Pod Squad. Um, if you'd like to be in on this Facebook group, it's just sort of like, it's pretty casual. We just, uh, mm-hmm. you know, chat about kind of interesting mm-hmm. history things. And um, I like to share funny memes mm-hmm. and um, it's just us being our normal mm-hmm. goofy selves. But so. it's also sort of a fun place where like, you know, say you listen to this episode and you have a question about something that we brought up or, mm-hmm. you know, you want to know more about one of the sources. I mean, you can ask us there. Right. I mean, you can also always ask us that in an email. Hello at digpodcast.org. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of fun because other people will sort of jump in and it starts a conversation and I don't know. And a, you meet new friends. Yeah. I always like that in podcasts that I listen to. I like to be able to kind right. of debrief an episode. And if you want to get in on how to pronounce certain words that we fight about in the show <laughs> you're welcome to add your yeah. two cents in there sure <laughs> certainly as i will note that you said caribbean and i said caribbean through yeah. this entire well episode. i used to say caribbean mm-hmm. but every person that i know who studies the caribbean says caribbean so then i was like oh maybe that's right but i think what it comes down to is it doesn't really matter because i think i hope either not. one is fine I-, I think either one is standard nowadays yeah. at this point we're just doing whatever yeah we I mean, know. in the we English language, we're just like, whatever. Yeah, the fine. English language is weird. So, yeah. All right. Bye. Bye. For France. For France. For France. <laughs> For France. And lascivious. Very lascivious. It's lascivious. Well, I'm saying lascivious. Okay. Because uh, it's an SC. So, get it together, English language. Santo Domingo. You wrote viscous. <laughs> very viscous. Uh, who, if the French decided that they could only succeed in their interests abroad if they had one leg up over the English. That sounds really dirty. One leg up. <laughs> oh, baby. <laughs> <laughs> President of the Committee of Public Safety in Paris. That, those are the one, Those are the people who did the Reign of Terror. I know. I know. Whenever someone, there, some, there's, I, I went to like some park and it was like, oh, the Committee of Public Safety. And I was like, that's kind of French Revolutionary, isn't it? And everyone was just like, what the f*** are you talking about? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.